0: Roxy, one of my favorite days of the year is coming up this weekend.
1: Well, you're not talking about All Saints Day.
0: I am not. It's even more spiritual than All Saints Day. It's the day we fall back and get an extra hour of sleep. Right, 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 right.
1: I do love that in the morning. And then in the evening, I hate it because suddenly it's dark at 4.30 p.m. And I leave work and feel like the whole day is gone.
0: And it's kind of depressing. Mm-hmm. Time to break out the vitamin D pills and sun lamps.
1: From Religion News Service, this is Safe by the City, a podcast from two Christian women catching some Z's in the city that never sleeps. I'm Roxy Stone.
0: And I'm Caitlin Beatty.
2: I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief.
1: I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be
3: somebody like me.
2: Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app.
0: We were with some friends last night and shared about an unexpected change in our lives.
1: We're both now morning people, as in (laughs) a.m.
0: Meaning we're getting up early in the morning and... For anyone who knew me even a few years ago, this is shocking. I am shocked by this change.
1: I am also shocked about that for you.
0: (laughs) Not for yourself.
1: I have stayed in some hotel rooms with you and I do remember like mourning Caitlin.
0: I I just want to apologize for anything I said before (laughs) 10 a.m. Well, that was the thing is you did not say much. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, uh, Caitlin, are you okay? It's probably for the best. I think we're still friends because I didn't say much. Right. But does that mean you have always been a morning person?
1: No, no. I'm shocked about it for me too. I definitely love my sleep and I'm not always great about going to bed on time. And so that Mm -hmm. usually meant like mornings were harder. Right. But yeah, I have like a whole morning routine now that I I genuinely cherish it. It is like my favorite time of day.
0: Well, walk us through it. What is your morning routine?
1: It does involve a walk. So I usually get up around 6.30. I will say that that is harder right now because of the whole dark in the morning thing. Mm-hmm. So that is that is a good thing about fallback. But I usually get up around 6.30 get myself a little ready. This is a little bit more recent, but I started doing morning pages, which many of you will know something about that. It's from The Artist's Way, which is like a program that you can do, like a 12-week program to help release your inner artist. Anyway, one of the recommendations that Julia Cameron, the author, makes is to get up every morning and write three pages of longhand, just whatever's on your mind, whatever comes, comes to you, kind of like journaling.
0: And when you say write, she really does mean you need a pen or pencil yeah. in your hand. You need blank pages. The actual physical act of writing is doing something for your brain and for your creativity. You can't like get on your computer and start typing. So she argues. Yes, yes.
1: And I do love it. And it was, it was a real lifeline for me over the past several months. So I do the morning pages. Sometimes I make coffee beforehand. Sometimes I just like do them in bed and then get up. But that usually takes about half an hour. Mm -hmm. Then the dog and I go for our walk. And this is, I love this so much. I live like five minutes from Riverside Park, which is, as you might imagine, on the side of a river.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And Central Park is rather central.
1: Exactly. They named them well, those ancient New Yorkers. But I... I love Riverside because of the river, because you can kind of see a little ways, So you get like an actual sky, some vistas. Mm -hmm. Oliver, the dog, loves Riverside Park because before 9 a.m., you can have your dog off leash. Mm. So he runs around, smells everything, pees on everything, explores everything. And I take a leisurely stroll, often listen to a podcast, usually something newsy. Mm -hmm. And it's just lovely. So we do that for like 45 minutes. And then if I'm doing great, I go to the gym.
0: You go to a physical gym.
1: Sometimes I do some chores instead or go grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. But my favorite thing to do is go to the gym and then take a quick shower and then work. I try to do a lot in the mornings. When I was home this summer, my mom was like, geez, you're really busy in the mornings. Yeah, yeah. I think some of it's the, yeah, checking things off. But I also think I just have energy in the morning. Mm -hmm. The day hasn't worn me out yet. All the things that I'm going to face with work, with stress, with people, with demands on my time. Like the morning feels so much like my time in a way that no
0: other part of the day does.
1: What about you? What is your new and surprising (laughs) morning routine?
0: Well, it starts a little later. Normally, I would say between 730 and eight. And I feel relatively alert when I wake up, which is new. Mm. So I will start by making coffee and then sometimes reading the Bible. Whoa. Now, throwback. <laughs> the, the Bible's a throwback. Whoa, that takes me back. Not every day, for sure. I try to follow the Anglican church lectionary for the day. Mm -hmm. It takes the load off of having to figure out, like, where is the Lord leading me? I don't know. But this church tradition has a way of telling the church story through this structure that I can just, like, drop into and drop out of whenever. And then I usually (laughs) transition from either the Bible or prayer to the New York Times Word Games. Mm. I am a Wordle loyalist,
1: you know? Yeah, and I gave it up when it lost my scores. <laughs> I was like, if I can't see if that I I've gotten 100%, <laughs> I <laughs> don't know the point anymore.
0: Yeah, I, I think I would give up then too. But yeah, Wordle, Spelling Bee, Sudoku, because I'm like a 55-year-old retiree. I don't know. It's just like a fun little brain exercise like to get the Mm -hmm. synapses firing and it's like a little reward during the beginning of the day.
1: Like you got a gold star before you even get started. Exactly. With the (laughs) serious stuff of the day. You have already had a win.
0: Then I kind of slowly transition to showering, getting dressed. I usually listen to a podcast Mm -hmm. while I'm getting ready. Usually like the newsy podcast. Yeah. And that's pretty much my morning. I really like having a rhythm that feels more in tune with, like, when it's light out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hmm Yeah.
0: You know, and there are reasons why the circadian rhythms are good to follow and why we feel terrible when we're, like, out of sync with them.
1: I love the light in the morning, and I also just, I feel like a go-getter when I'm out there in the morning, like, walking around in the park with all the other dog owners and runners and you know I just I feel like I've seized the day
0: (laughs) so maybe those pastors and writers of our childhood were right in that is morning really the best time to like connect with God and be a person Mm, yes and no more on that soon well speaking of morning routines and quiet times I think for us and for many people who grew up in the church in the 80s and 90s, there was definitely a a script or a, a right way and a wrong way to mm. practice the presence of God, so to speak, to be a good Christian with good spiritual disciplines.
1: Central to that was your morning quiet time. It's a deeply spiritual time. You have to change your voice when you talk about it. For you, what was quiet time like? For me, it was reading the Bible. Maybe as a kid I would like play not a kid but like a teenager I would play some worship music in the background or something while I was reading the Bible sometimes I would write prayers out to God Mm -hmm. most of my journaling as a teenager was actually like praying to God which is kind of sweet and wonderful
0: now you're just praying to yourself (laughs) you're praying to Julia Cameron (laughs) in her artist's way it sounds like an idol
1: well she does talk about God and she says if if you're uncomfortable with the word god you can call it good orderly direction so
0: <laughs> okay that's cheesy but effective <laughs> as most acronyms are my journals growing up were prayers on one page and then you'd flip the page and it would be like a list of the boys i had crushes on hey hey <laughs> i think i got to like 20 or mm-hmm. 21 one season That was like a litany. Yeah. (laughs) That's where my mind and heart were. type of prayer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, yes, I mean, quiet time, which I guess I saw modeled by my parents around the time we started attending this seeker-sensitive church when I was a a young teenager. But then, like, you know, our pastor, youth pastor, would talk about this. And if I was doing it well, Mm -hmm. it was like, listen to a couple worship music songs, study the Bible and then pray. And I just remember feeling like if I did it, it was like a big like spiritual check mark. Mm-hmm. If I didn't do it because all sorts of reasons, I'm backsliding. Oh yeah. the implication was that you need to keep doing these things in order to be, in god's favor or a good christian or a christian that's growing there was very much a kind of performance and like maximal spiritual optimization rather than even like connecting with god for its own sake
1: i felt all of that too i felt particular like angst around the one-year bible reading plan which i did Every year for several years. But a lot of times, like, I would have to spend a couple hours on the weekend catching up. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: you did do it.
1: I did. I did it for three years in a row, which whoa actually was pretty awesome. And I have a little bit of jealousy for that particular form of, like, discipline that my mm-hmm. teenage self had. Even if it was a little bit driven by some fear, some sense of, like, this is what it meant to be holy and... And that like God would be mad at me if I didn't do that. But Mm -hmm. so I don't know that I want like to be driven by a fear of divine punishment, like that kind of discipline. But it was effective (laughs) around the Bible reading.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you can now say that you've read the entirety of Scripture from beginning to end at least three times.
1: I can say that.
0: And you will and you do.
1: (laughs) Whenever I get a chance.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like. Regardless of the intention or the motivating factor or emotion, it led to this good structured result. But it would also be great if that were backed more by like curiosity or I just want to learn for the sake of learning rather than I need to get a gold star from God. Right. But
1: I also didn't do it in the morning as a teenager. So I don't even know if it counts in the same way.
0: (laughs) It doesn't. I am I'm sorry to say. So, when did this performance-oriented framework really start to break down or shift for you?
1: Mm-hmm. It was in college. I had read a book called Grace Walk, which is a real throwback, and it wasn't like a super popular book, you know. Mm. But a couple people in my like small group read it, and I found it really profound and beautiful, and this like really this invitation to a kind of relationship with God that I did not have that was not driven by performance that was Mm -hmm. driven by, by grace and it felt expansive and freeing.
0: The author is named Steve McVeigh. Yes. (laughs) It was published in 2005. It has sold almost 200,000 copies. So surely some of our listeners have heard that's a big book. Let us know
1: if you also (laughs) remember this book. So I had kind of challenged myself at the time to drop the to-do list of spiritual disciplines, you know, like the one-year Bible reading plan, whatever journal I was working through, probably some devotional journal or something, you Mm -hmm. know, like to just kind of drop that stuff. And I was really afraid to do it because I was afraid I wouldn't actually do those things then if I didn't make myself, if I didn't have the sense that I was supposed to or had to, Mm -hmm. if I let go of this idea that God would be mad at me if I didn't do them or disappointed, and in fact, that is what happened. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I had a really hard time after that, like
0: reading the Bible in the same kind of way. Kids, the lesson is: divine punishment is a really effective motivator, and I think we should use it for all of us. <laughs> the Lord is peeved. Do better.
1: So I don't have a an easy like arc narrative to describe like how I went from like to do list disciplines Uh to a beautiful feeling of spiritual connectedness to God that is self driven because it didn't, it doesn't feel simple to me. I feel like it took a long time for me after going through that transition in college. It took me a long time to figure out the kinds of practices that made sense to me, that made me feel connected to God. And I would also say that that is something that has not stayed the same or Uh that I have not, like, found the magic thing.
0: I probably stopped trying to have a quiet time in earnest in my late 20s, which is when I was going through significant personal crises and pretty mad at God. The anger can go the other direction sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I just had this sense of, like, Uh, I'm losing my faith, or this is bad. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, this year, I'm going to do one of those (laughs) read the Bible in a year plans. This will get me back on track. I paid for a plan. I, like, you know, geared myself up. And I will say I made it to maybe mid-February because annual Bible reading plans tend to die in the book of Leviticus.
3: Uh
1: (laughs) Uh-huh. In the dead of winter. (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly. And the feeling... That experience, we've already established, like, reading scripture is is good, but the experience of trying a plan and actually failing miserably only compounded the sense of, well, I'm a bad Christian. Like, all these other Christians seem to be able to stick with a discipline, read the Bible consistently, and pray consistently, and I'm just not, I'm, I'm, like, so inconsistent, and that means that I have failed at this Christian Thing. And I think maybe that's like realizing that I'll never be good at it is freeing to then say, you don't have to be good at this thing. Like God is available to meet you in a variety of ways that don't even feel like a to do checklist. Like, what if you're taking a walk early in the morning or out on a trail or, you know, having dinner with friends? enjoying these good communal and physical gifts. Mm -hmm. God is as present to us there as God is present to us when we pray or when we sit down to read scripture or do the artist's way. I just think proceeding from the sense that God is wanting to meet us in our lives and we have a lot of freedom to experience god in ways that make sense to us like starting from that posture is probably better for the long term and it may actually also include like prayer but Mm -hmm. like prayer from the sense of connection rather than duty so you've talked about walking working out spending time with oliver in the mornings the artist way morning pages what are the practices that you find yourself returning to that feel life-giving and spiritually connective?
1: I mean, all of those things in different ways, for sure. Sometimes I think I should not listen to as many podcasts in the morning on my walks because I do feel like walking is is one of those times where my mind goes to like a more spiritual place. And when I'm listening to podcasts, I'm like filling my mind with more yes. noise, you know? Right. So I have actually been thinking about that. Like maybe maybe I don't need to listen to a podcast the whole time I walk. Mm-hmm. So those moments can be really prayerful for me. They're not like set aside in that way mm-hmm. in a specific like I'm praying now. And I feel like besides the things that you just listed, which all feel like moments of connection to a more spiritual side but, and morning pages too. I think one of the most intentional practices that I have for myself that's outside of church is more of a practice of gratitude Mm -hmm. to God, which at its most basic is me like saying grace, (laughs) thanking God for meals, which I don't always do like out loud. That's so basic because that's weird. I know. Like there is something about nourishment Mm -hmm. and like the work of community and people and land and animals and everything that goes into keeping us alive. Mm -hmm. That feels like a moment worth being grateful for Mm -hmm. beyond just the basic of thanking God for my food. Like I do think there really is something to being aware when you are attentive to the world around you Mm -hmm. that breeds a kind of gratitude. And I think being able to live in a space and a posture of gratitude is one of the ways I can feel the most connected to God as a source in my life, as mm-hmm. as a loving presence in my life. Mm-hmm. And also sort of can reframe for me just like the way that I view the world or the way that I'm the mood that I might be in or something.
0: Practices that help us pay attention to life as life and like what an incredible and mysterious Gift it is, and like we may not be here, but we are. And as people of faith, we acknowledge that we have been given this gift from God, and it's ours to enjoy and to savor. What about you? It strikes me that quiet time, as it was framed growing up, was very individualistic. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even connected. It seemed in my mind to church, like church was the thing that you did mm-hmm. right with other people on Sundays, but then. Almost maybe more significant was your quiet time, like individual yeah. prayer, worship, reading scripture.
1: I definitely got that message growing up.
0: That model just is unhelpful to me for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that have felt life-giving and life-awakening to me in the the last few years and one of the most consistent themes is that they are with other people you know family friends people at church but just believing that like one of the most wondrous things we have is connection with each other and not just in serious intense conversation but like fun and play and delight Mm -hmm. and laughing and singing and crying together crying is not as fun unless they're fun happy tears The ability to connect with another person is that in and of itself is an incredible gift. And I think at this stage in my life, I'm so much more invested in and interested in fostering a spirituality that is with others rather than just me and God.
1: Boy, I really resonate with that, too. I think church and church community and the church sort of moments of gathering have become such tentpoles in my weekly rhythms and mm-hmm. I really feel connected to God in those moments during worship, during the prayers of the people. Lately, I can't seem to get through the prayers of the people without crying mm-hmm. in my pew, which also feels somehow special, like that my people are around me and witnessing that. And the older I get, the more I recognize that the life of the church and the rhythms of the church are where so much of our sense of connection with God can be fostered and Mm -hmm. encouraged and can lift us up like when we're having a tough time.
0: It strikes me that church typically happens in the mornings. (laughs) We're back. (laughs) Which brings us back to the question, is morning actually more spiritual?
1: It's a good question. And one our guest today helps us tease out.
0: Karen Wright Marsh is executive director of Theological Horizons and author of the book Wake Up to Wonder, 22 Invitations to Amazement in the Everyday. Fun fact, she is also married to Charles Marsh, the historian we spoke with last year. Both of them know a lot about spiritual performance anxiety from evangelical upbringings and how to break free from it.
1: Our conversation with Karen is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics
0: from encyclicals to evangelicals, RNS is here for it all.
1: And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show.
0: Don't forget to submit your weirdest ever date story at the new Saved by the City hotline, which you can find at speakpipe.com/savedbythecity. One lucky and by lucky I mean blessed participant will get some SBTC swag.
1: Ooh! You can also email us at sbtcpodcasts at religionnews.com. we love to hear from you.
0: Hey there, curious minds.
2: Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild.
0: I'm Amber Hacker.
2: And I'm Tom Levinson.
0: Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money.
2: I think giving, and this is a little crass, but I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality.
0: Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances.
2: Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I have some troubling news, Roxy. Those evangelical pastors might have been right after all.
1: Mm, well, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Ouch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there is, there is some scientific data mm-hmm. confirming that mornings are actually better for humans. Mm,
1: let me guess. Something to do with our brains?
0: Those scientists love to talk about brains, but you're right. According to Robert Carter, author of The Morning Mind... Our brains are actually physically bigger when we wake up. What? (laughs) So our heads and bodies are level during sleep, and that helps our brains receive more body fluid. (laughs) There's so much about fluid. Mm. And so when we wake up, uh, our brain is optimal for performing right after waking up. Other scientists note that people who wake up early have more time in the morning. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Which Imagine that. It seems a bit of a circuitous finding, but because they have more time, and I think you'll appreciate this, to exercise, Mm -hmm. to eat breakfast, to get ready, to commute, they avoid waking up feeling stressed instead of the like, oh, shoot, it's 9 a.m., I've overslept, I have to run to the office, Mm -hmm. you have time to ease into the day, and that means less stress overall. The same scientists also found that morning types are relatively rare among young people, but frequent among older adults.
1: I don't want to think about what that means and what that says about us.
0: We're just just the rare young people. Yeah, that's that's the Botox episode. (laughs) Finally, the good news is that morning is good not just for productivity. A recent New York Times piece covered the benefits of morning meditation. Just even five minutes... In the morning of breathing exercises to calm and focus the mind for the day, Dr. Eva Tsuda says morning meditation sets the tone for the day and more easily becomes a habit when it's done in the morning. All right.
1: Well, the science says it all. The data proves it.
0: We are better people.
1: We're better people because we're morning people.
0: We'll pray for you night owls. (laughs) Today's guest is Karen Wright Marsh, author of the book, Wake Up to Wonder, 22 Invitations to Amazement in the Everyday.
3: Thanks so much for being here, Karen. Hey, Karen. Thank you for including me in the conversation. So I
0: imagine that all of us grew up in faith environments where spirituality very much felt like a to-do list. You're supposed to do your devotional in the morning. You're supposed to have prayer multiple times a day, like check, check, check. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we all know this can be very wearying and kind of performance oriented. Or gratifying if you like to check things off a list. Mm, This is true. (laughs) Yes. If you are goal oriented, you might actually gravitate to this. But you write that you abandoned a plan and said chose to follow people. So what does that look like? Why did you choose to start following people instead of kind of come up with the perfect spirituality plan.
3: Yes. Well, I didn't have much success with the perfect plan. I will say at the outset that my mother reads through her Bible every single year, cover to cover. So I'm the child of a great achiever. I grew up with a language of discipline, you know, spiritual disciplines, fasting, Mm -hmm. prayer, scripture. And it always, to me, felt like a lot of effort, pre-dawn was always the best time, the most holy time to do your disciplines, (laughs) of course, before the sun, before your coffee. Why is that? (laughs) Uh, See, and that's, this is part of it. Like I just took it for granted until I realized that it just wasn't going that well. And I kept sleeping through my alarm. So Mm -hmm. my failures, my defeats, my discouragement, before I even got to the benefits, you know, I I just couldn't sustain Mm -hmm. some of my ideal disciplines. And so, you know, I felt like, there was no joy or delight or refreshment in it and i'm just overworked you know i'm already working hard <laughs> in many areas of my life and so for spiritual life to be just one more mm-hmm. task uh, or one more set of expectations was pretty discouraging mm-hmm. and i work with a lot of college students as the director of theological horizons and they are very driven here at the university of virginia they they're really used to achievement perfection great grades and they're stressed out and they're anxious and i'm always sort of encouraging them to come to the spiritual life to come to faith as an opportunity to breathe an opportunity to relax and be refreshed and i do that through telling them stories of different Mm. people of from the christian tradition i think in giving them all this great advice I finally started listening to it for Mm -hmm. myself. I just started really seeing these different styles of living a spiritual life. I often talk about Howard Thurman, who lived in the 20th century, and he pastored activists on the front lines of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So these were people who were putting their bodies on the line every day. And he was a pastor and a mystic and a preacher. And he would say to them, you need to practice the art of being still. And he would recommend rest, rest lest you perish, he would say. Mm. And so he invites this practice of creative lassitude, which I think is so charming and so poetic. He says we need to cease from our physical and mental churning. So when I hear about pause and rest and creative lassitude as a spiritual practice, it definitely piques my curiosity because it doesn't sound like pre-dawn praying. It sounds like taking a nap in the afternoon. So, so examples like Howard Thurman or Lilius Trotter, who was a 20th century painter, she just used her eyes. She used her art to see the beauty around her. And this was her way of living a spiritual life and practicing her faith by painting, by observing, by taking joy in, in the beauty of the, the earth. Another person who's really helped me reframe this idea of people over practices is Brother Lawrence, you know, mm-hmm. who was in this steamy kitchen in the monastery, living his very busy and full life and practicing the presence of God. And one thing that he says that I've always repeated to myself is one is not a saint all of a sudden. <laughs> so the idea of practice, the idea of picking up these postures every day, you know, every day is a new opportunity to learn, to be present to God, to be present to ourselves, and practicing an awareness of God, you know, that's enough of a project right there, you know, for a lifetime.
1: Mm. I'm talking to you today from rural Colorado, which is all farmers and ranchers. (laughs) Um, Amazing. And I think they have a lot in common with some of the people that you profile who so many of them in your book are, they're very earthy. They're singing and breathing and baking and farming. (laughs) (laughs) handling animals, these very bodily human activities. I mean, even going to the beach like Dorothy Day did, it's all very embodied. So as you were writing this book, how did you sort of come to think about these earthly spiritual activities, these bodily activities, when so often I think we've been trained to think of spirituality as this very heady, like theological thing, and it seems like you're inviting a different kind of relationship with God, with spirituality through this embodiment.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's so powerful for me. Well, you think about the verse uh, from the Bible that you shall love the God, and you, you think about the verse from the Bible that says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. I mean, it's right there in front of you in the Bible that we should use all aspects of our being to love God and to experience God. And yes, I think the whole emphasis on the head knowledge, intellectual, dogma, doctrine, it's just such a limited branch of the Christian family. That I grew up in in the Western sort of intellectual tradition of Christian spirituality. And of course, as a child, that's all I thought there was. But mm-hmm. then you see someone like Ephraim the Syrian, you know, who lived like in the fourth century, who's writing these incredible hymns of praise to God. And and Martin Luther, he was an intellectual, but he taught his people to sing as a way of learning the scripture and a way of spreading his ideas about God. He was a pretty earthy guy, as I understand yeah. it. <laughs>
0: Didn't he, like, pass gas at the devil? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So Uh. everything can be unto
3: the glory of God. (laughs) He did take it to the extreme. Yeah, I love Martin Luther. I just could never live with him. I think he would just be impossible. But I did love the singing. And he's giving advice to a prince who's experiencing melancholy. And first he says, you should go out and go riding with your friends, like out in the woods, and you should Mm -hmm. be playing games, and you should be digging in the dirt. And finally, he says, you know, try singing. So he's using all these bodily remedies for depression and melancholy. And I Mm -hmm. I just think there's a lot of pastoral wisdom in that, you know, to get out. Mm -hmm. And the more we know from science about how our mental health works um, and how our spirits are built into these bodies, you know, doesn't it make sense that we would use all the different channels of experience and the channels of grace and the channels of understanding to live the spiritual life, whether that's praying and breathing, walking, or talking. I think of these as channels of grace.
0: So you introduce 22 saints, Christian figures in your book, and it's obvious that you have a lot of affection for all of them for different reasons, but you have to have a few favorites. So if you had to choose one, who would your personal
3: patron saint be? Uh, If I had to choose one, I'm going to give you two. One, she's not my patron saint, but she's like my kind of my daughter saint. Like I feel very, very maternal towards Sophie Scholl. And because I'm with so many college students, she always Mm. feels like one of them to me. She was born in 1921 and she died in 1941. She was killed by the Gestapo, by Hitler, for resisting the Third Reich. But she was a college student. With her brother and some friends, they formed this little white rose, this little pocket of secret resistance. And all they had was like black paint and an illegal printer. They would paint on walls down with Hitler, you know, rise up. And they would create these flyers against Hitler. And they knew what was right. They took action with very, very little. And they were discovered and they were killed, like within hours. And so I just love her because she so, feels so dear to me as a young person who, again, didn't make a big deal out of it. It wasn't some sustained discipline. It was just acts of courage in small things. Mm-hmm. I think it's for my patron saint, it's Wangari Mathai, who was a Kenyan woman born in 1940. And she lived till 2011. And I love her right now because I, like everyone, I'm so concerned about the earth and the environment. Mm. And she saw in her home of Kenya, the destruction of of the trees, of the land that she had grown up in, the land of her people. And so she gathered the women of her village and then the women of Kenya to plant trees, these tiny little seedlings. And they planted more than 40 million trees in Kenya alone. And these were everyday village women and she also taught nutrition and she got involved in politics because she saw the you know urban landscape being destroyed so she created these great acts of resistance she saved this major park in Nairobi and she ended up winning the Nobel Prize for it you know after being imprisoned and she was a christian person she was educated at a catholic college in Kansas She studied biology, but her faith was so much more than her education. It was, you know, here is my country, here is my land, here are my people, what do we need to do? We just got to plant some trees here. Mm. So I think of her as my patron saint, because she gives me no excuses, basically, you know, to find some way of action, to find some way of making change in my own neighborhood with my Mm. own people.
1: Wonder, which is the headline of your book, what is it about wonder in particular, that you feel like offers a kind of antidote to the world we're living in right now and the context we're living in right now.
3: Since this book came out recently, the first question at a book event was, how can you talk about wonder when so many people live lives of grinding poverty, of violence? Mm -hmm. You know, you were in this environmental crisis like isn't wonder just like blissed out chilled out Mm -hmm. happiness like how how is that responsible and that was a great question because it's really gotten me thinking and I mentioned Howard Thurman earlier and Howard Thurman has this answer for us which is to see the small things around us is so critical to bring a posture of wonder a posture of awe is a survival technique Dr. Keltner, who is a scientist at UCAL Berkeley, he's a scientist of human emotion, and he's written a book about awe. And I put awe and wonder together. And he talks about the experience of awe is when you encounter something vast that transcends your understanding of the world. We're built for awe. We're built for wonder. You know, when we get tears on our eyes at a beer commercial, <laughs> these are emotions and these are experiences that are good for us and are vital for us. I think of wonder as an antidote to burnout as a call to make time to care for ourselves to care for other people to notice the world and i think when we bring wonder let's say to the environment you know the more we love the tree in front of our dorm the more we want to save it the more wonder we find in one another you know that person on the street asking for money, the more love and compassion we can bring to them. What do you think, Roxy? (laughs) How does wonder work for you? I like that you chose wonder because I
1: think it demands attention. And I think it's really hard to find if you're distracted. At least for me, I feel like generally it involves more than one sense and really connects me to either a moment or a place. And place is really important for me um, and being out in nature. I mean, it, it sounds obvious, but yeah, like that's usually when it happens for me. But I think there is something about it that really demands a fullness of yourself.
3: Mm-hmm. What
0: are you thinking, Caitlin? I mean, you mentioned the students you work with, their relationship with screens feels very familiar. And There really has to be a muscle exercised to pay attention to what is going on beyond the screens. These platforms that we're on, they're they're designed to be addictive. And just even little things. Like, I'm just going to walk and see what I see and be present. Even that feels kind of like a huge task. But if you did that, I don't know, 20 minutes, three times a week, Mm -hmm. your relationship to the world and your openness and curiosity about the people and the place around you could really shift in a a positive way. And maybe whatever's going on on the screen feels less attractive.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you have authentic experiences. You practice it a couple of times or enough times where you feel the difference between listening to birdsong. We know that listening to birdsong gives us literal mental health benefits so I'll often tell myself that or when I'm talking to other people, it's like the more scientists know how our bodies and our brains work, mm-hmm. the more affirmed we are in pursuing these practices of wonder and amazement. And you can choose other other ways of being that will restore that sense of peace and wholeness to you because that's what it's made for. I love Rabbi Heschel. One of his passages he talks about, to be spiritual is to be amazed. Mm -hmm. Something to the effect that when we lose our ability to be amazed, that is a sin. When Mm. we don't see the wonder in the world, that is unbelief. He says, everything is amazing. Everything is phenomenal. Take nothing for granted. Mm. And so for me, like getting back to this first question of spiritual disciplines, like that doesn't sound like that amazement isn't quite on that list, but it should be. Mm.
0: Well, let's explore the wonder together. <laughs> 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 yeah. Unfortunately, it's hard to do over a screen, but that is how we are connecting today. But since there are so many great exercises in your book, Karen, I thought perhaps we could try one together to round
3: out our time. I would love to do that. Well, let's try this little exercise. It's from the invitation I'd call these chapters invitations from Brother Lawrence and the invitation is to choose your intention and I talked about Brother Lawrence he was the guy who lived in the kitchen who practiced the presence of God and he talks about a brief little remembrance of God so I love the small scale of his practice mm-hmm. so we're going to start with a quote from Brother Lawrence and then we're going to do a guided meditation together you will not be asked to share with your neighbor, so you can relax. There will be no sharing. <laughs> All right, so here are words from Brother Lawrence from Practicing the Presence of God. We must not grow weary of doing little things for the love of God, who looks not on the great size of the work, but on the love of it. Again, we must not grow weary of doing little things for the love of God, Who looks not on the great size of the work but on the love of it so if you're comfortable you can breathe close your eyes rest your gaze whatever you like as i invite you into these prompts might you think of one thing you can do in the coming 24 hours for the sake of god or someone else Put aside grand resolutions for now. Settle on a small practical action that expresses your care. Now, make a concrete plan to act on your intention. Imagine yourself doing this small, practical action that expresses your care. So as you return from this teeny tiny invitation, hear these words from Brother Lawrence, who said... We must not be surprised at failing frequently in the beginning. In the end, we will have developed the habit that enables us to produce acts of love without thinking about them and derive a great deal of pleasure from them. Thus endeth the practice.
0: <laughs> I like how um, practical this was. <laughs> Very. <laughs> Make a plan. <laughs> we'll yes. put it in your Google calendar.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's all do that right now. Mm-hmm. That's what I really hoped for with this book was these were just things that are fun and appealing and inviting and small and then make a plan hmm. and try it and see how it goes. Because one is not a saint all of a sudden. Ah. Well, thank
0: you for guiding us through that meditation and for a really rich conversation. And congratulations on your new book. Well, thank
1: you, Caitlin. Thanks, Rox. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Well, I'll think of you all on my walk this afternoon. I won't even listen to uh, your podcast. (laughs) I'll just be walking.
1: (laughs) Well, we wouldn't wouldn't go that far. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, maybe on the way back. (laughs) That is a spiritual activity. That is a spiritual activity for sure.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's going to be edifying. I can't wait.
1: Safe by the City is a Religion News Service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Julia Wyndham and Elizabeth Joy
0: Wyndham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are
3: Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.